Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis once again, and let's just say 46. Most of our time is actually going to be spent in 47, but we are going to pick up some reading. I wanted to mention, too, at the outset, I'm going to do something that I did one time before when we had a longer stretch of Scripture. I'm going to read a portion that concerns the first part of things, and then in the middle another portion, and then at the end another portion, because I think if I read this whole thing at the outset, we'll kind of get lost with the details, and they won't be, we won't be conversant with them when we're talking about them again. Uh, there are the outlines there if you uh, need those or want those. Genesis 46, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for a beautiful day. Thank you for the springtime, and uh, more generally for the seasons. We thank you for the marvelous variety that you blend into life. And spring, of course, is the time of the year when we think about a reawakening, and we think about Easter, we think about new life, and uh, we're grateful for the life you've given to us. And not just the physical life, but the spiritual life. Because we reflect on the fact that there was a time when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And now you have given us new life in Christ. We're new creations if we know him as our personal Savior. And we're so grateful for that. Part of that is that it gives us the understanding, the interest in your word, but also the ability with the Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts to understand your word and to profit from it. That's what we seek in this hour. So would you bless Brother Bruce over here uh, to my left, and uh, would you bless Jerry to my right, and in this class now for us, wherever we're gathered in the building, and the other teachers also as we break the bread of life, and then in the morning and evening worship services today, also there, we just pray your blessing on this day at Community. We want Christ to be honored and glorified. And Father, each of us is an individual. We each have particular needs. And I pray, Father, that you would allow something that I say this morning to be a blessing and a help uh, to each person uh, who is, is, is gathered here today. Lord, we're mindful that on any given Sunday, there are some folks that they're away, they're traveling, they're... they're um, laid aside because of sickness or other reasons. We just pray that you will be with them and encourage them. Bless any who are, are joining online. Uh, encourage them. Thank you for their diligence to, to uh, listen in in order that they might also participate in the, the Word of God on, on the Lord's Day. Would you just help now as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we continue our look at the, at the uh, life of Joseph and... Lord, once again, we're just desirous that uh, the Bible tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore all Scripture is profitable, but we need you to make it so for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple of words have characterized everything until this point in the life of Joseph. We've talked about suspense, and I mean, there was a period of time there really from the beginning with chapter 37 and then on through until we got really to chapter 45 where that just built. I mean, every week it was more and more till you're just about on the edge of your seat, not knowing what's going to come next unless you've read the story in advance, which we have the benefit of doing. And then there's been drama. We think about last week as everything kind of climaxed and there was that time of Joseph with his brothers and his revealing of himself. So. And I mentioned to you, I used a word last week, that, that really is kind of the pinnacle of the story, which in some ways I, I hesitate to tell you that because you're going to think, well, okay, everything's downhill from here. 
No, it really isn't. It's just that it has a little different tenor to things now. There's a little bit of a different, there's a change in the story because there's a change in the circumstances, but that doesn't mean any the less that there's not a great deal that we can profit by. So this morning, um, I want to bring you a lesson that I've entitled Faithful Servant. And let's begin reading in our Bibles at verse 28 of 46. In this section, we're going to read down to verse 12 of chapter 47. He had sent Judah ahead. He is Jacob there. So Jacob had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. Now note this next detail. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? They said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning, or pilgrimage, are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life and have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Abraham died at 175, uh, Isaac at 180, so that's the reference. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided for his fathers, his brothers, and his father's household with food according to the numbers or the number of their dependents or their little ones. 
So thinking about this this morning, I asked the Lord this week, what is it that we need to talk about here this morning? And I, I'm always blessed when that's the kind of the way you approach something like this. You're, it's not that I haven't worked through this material before, but are, we're concentrating in particular on Joseph. And so I was thinking to myself, how are we going to organize this material? Because what happens when you get to this point in the story, you certainly don't have a de-emphasis of Joseph, but you have a blending in now of Jacob. And there's a reason for this, because if you think about this, everything before now, when we focused on Joseph, he's been in Egypt and there's nobody but him in Egypt, right? Now it's changed. And so what chapter 46 is mostly about, which is why we, we skipped over the opening part of chapter 46, is mostly a record of Jacob and his move to, e to Egypt. And there's also a lengthy section in the middle of the chapter about the genealogy so that you know who all and what their numbers were of the tribes, everybody who came down with Jacob into Egypt. So you have to make room in the story. Like I said, it's a different tenor to the story now. Once Israel, once Jacob and his family come down into Egypt, then they're a part of things. So it's a change, just like it's a change for you if, if you have somebody move in with you. If you have some relatives move in with you or something, you, you know that's a change. And so it's a change now in the narrative and in the ongoing progress of the story. What I'm impressed with and what I by God's grace, would like to try to communicate to you this morning is when I look at this material that's before us, I'm, I'm really impressed that the Lord has seen fit, and I'm not saying there are not other things you could do with this, but if you're thinking about Joseph, I'm really impressed with the Lord has seen fit to give us in this an opportunity to gaze into the life of Jacob in what you might call not routine, I don't think that's exactly the right word, but in a sense it is, but his ongoing life, his life from day to day, what did he do? And what we find here is a beautiful picture, I think, of someone who lived a life of service. Let me pause with that phrase for a moment because, you know, it's important for us. We really tend to think of things in terms of, well, there are full-time Christian servants. That's true. All that simply means is, is that you're, that's where you derive your livelihood as well as you spend your time. But we have to always keep realizing that all of us are full-time Christians. There's not such a thing as a part-time Christian. We're all full-time Christians. And since it's also true that the Lord has called us to a life of service to Him and for Him, we should all be thinking about living a life of service. After all, you know, we don't want to get to the end of what we do in this world and have stand before the Lord and have him ask us, well, you know, what you do with your time? And I think it's really important for us. Life changes. Life has its seasons. Just as the story of Joseph is changing now, it sort of takes on a new dimension with his family there. They become for him an additional responsibility. So life has its seasons, but it doesn't mean that through those seasons, we don't continue to serve him, even though the type of our service may sort of change a bit in character. Am I, am I communicating to you what I'm after here with this this morning? So I want to look at three areas, because I think we can look at his, his service, first of all, to his brothers. And when I, brothers is about as good a word as I can come up with, but 
when we read down through this, we see that it's not just his brothers, but it's their household. That's a lot of people. So when you get this all combined. And then, of course, there's Pharaoh, because, I mean, he is still what we might call the prime minister of Egypt. So he has that part of life still to continue living. And then there's his father. And I didn't really say about too, too much of this before, but did you notice when there were those interviews, there were those visits of, of Joseph's brothers that almost invariably, that was the first thing he asked about, his father. And in the last one, that was true as well. The first thing he wants to know about is his father. And when this part of the story starts up for us this morning, that's the first thing that comes to attention. Verse 29 of chapter 46 again, Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father. There's always something special going on between Joseph and his father. And this is a season of life too, right? Because at this point, Jacob's not a young man. Did you kind of get that from the story? I mean, when he's standing before Pharaoh, it's kind of interesting when you read this. Um, it says, verse 7, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father. Look at how this is phrased. And stood him before Pharaoh. So we could look at that in the sense that he presented him, but it, it's interesting that the very first thing that Pharaoh asks him is, how old are you? <laughs> so I get the impression that Joseph at this point, he's 130 years, he sees Joseph and he says, now let me die. In other words, he figures, it, I've done everything I need to do. Life, life, is, life has been full now, you know, but God gives him 17 more years, but he's no spring chicken. And so now Joseph has a particular responsibility, and life, life is kind of that way. I mean, it turns around on you, you know. It's when you're, when you're a, a younger parent, you're providing for your children, and that's the way God intends for it to be. And then you get further down the road in life, and of course, your children move out, they get married, and all that kind of thing, or they're off with their own lives, and you play a different role. It's not that you're no longer their father or their mother. You are, but they're making their own decisions. And if you've had a good relationship with them from time to time, they may come to you and ask for counsel. I know I sure did that a plenty of times with my dad and was glad for the counsel that he could give. Um, but as life progresses even more, now you change again. And what happens when your parents get to that stage in life where they can't really, you know, do the things that they used to do. Everybody in this room knows what I'm talking about. And then life takes on another responsibility. So this is really interesting in a lot of ways to look into. So first of all, we've used a lot of time with introduction, but let's get on to this thing about his brothers. I want to point you, if you look down at your outline that you have, I've, I've used four key words. So those are kind of the key thoughts that I want to try to develop. Joseph has a goal. I want to also point to Joseph's honesty. Do you see I've underlined those words for you? And I also want to point to his loyalty and finally to his success. And all of this is around the idea of his service to his family, his brothers and their households. So Joseph has an immediate goal. And it's always important, I think, to accomplish things in life, to have goals. And Obviously, the first thing, and the whole reason that they came down there is to provide for them. Look at uh, verse 12 there in 47. 
That's your key verse on this thought. This is what's really going on. This is kind of a summary idea of everything he's doing. Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according, this is literally according to their little ones, which is kind of a touching phrase. ESV chooses to render, render it here dependence, but later in the chapter it just says little ones. So I, I don't know, maybe they, they think they're achieving some variety or that smoother English, I'm not sure. But the obvious thing is to take care of their physical needs. They moved there because they couldn't take care of themselves in the land of Canaan because of the famine, right? So the physical needs pertain to the body. They need food, they need shelter, all those kinds of things. But I think something else is going on here, and I want to propose that you consider this. You know, in the course of years of ministry, I noticed something that concerned me. Invariably, in church work, you, you get people moving. I mean, it just happens. They're transferred, or they get a, another job opportunity somewhere else, and they pray about that, they evaluate that. Always used to really bother me when I would notice. It didn't happen always, but it happened a lot. When I would notice people and they got a job offer somewhere and the only thing that, that really occupied their attention was the job, the pay, the opportunity for advancement. And I always thought, well, you know, that's not unimportant. That's the whole reason that you're considering this. But let me tell you something that's more important. Because you can move somewhere and, and, and have it be a promotion and have it be a great job and be doing much better in that sense financially. But what happens if there's not a good church there? If you're concerned about your children's education, I'm not talking controversially now, I'm just saying, if you're concerned about your children's education, have you looked into the schools there? If you don't have a high degree of confidence, or for other reasons, you're just not in the public system, is there a Christian school there? And somehow these things kind of get lost in the translation, and then all of a sudden they move, and they begin to fall apart spiritually, because they don't have those support mechanisms that God intended for them to have. So I think Joseph is thinking in spiritual terms as well here. Let me show you something that I think is really interesting in the story. Why did I give you all of those references? Because in every one of those verses, you're going to find a reference to Goshen. There's nine of them. It's like it just keeps Goshen, 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 Goshen. Um, we won't go back and read them all, but even if you just go back to the first one, take my word for it. If you go back to the first one, chapter 45, verse 10, and take a look at that, that verse. You shall dwell. See, this is even before they've moved, he tells them this. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. It's like from the very beginning, Joseph knew he wanted them in Goshen. And then in all of those references that you're going to see there, it's Goshen, Goshen, Goshen. Until we get, there's one of them there that uses Ramesses, the land of Ramesses, which is the other name for the land of Goshen. But skip to the very last one, chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Now, what's going to develop here is, see, he's giving his brothers instructions, and he says to them, when you get here, here's how you talk to Pharaoh. He's going to ask you what your occupation is. And when he asks you what your occupation is, you tell him, We're, we've been shepherds. 
keepers of, of livestock. D different words, but you can't really get away from the shepherd idea here. It becomes very important in one of the verses that I emphasized when we were reading this. So he wants his brothers to be forthright. He wants his brothers to, to tell Pharaoh that that's what they were. And I have, I have to really appreciate the fact, because when we read at the end of verse number, uh, get back to this, um, yes, verse, uh, last verse of chapter 46, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, folks, I have to tell you, this is something that we don't totally understand. And there are a lot of different theories on this. Um, some people talk about the Hyksos kings. How many have heard that word before? Okay, several of you have. So let me just give you a quick thought on that so that we're not just, time is of the essence, but I'll at least mention it. So this is sort of a, an interesting thought, but it's somewhat debatable. Even the name Hyksos is somewhat debatable, but most people who, who talk about this um, refer to the, the meaning of Hyksos as being like shepherd kings. And they were, they were real, okay? They were real. What we know about them was they were um, foreign, foreign invaders who somehow <clears throat> were able to gain control of Egypt during a particular period of time. And so what some people conjecture is, is okay, the reason that there's this antipathy between the Egyptians and shepherds is because these dominant people came in, they became kind of oppressor kings, and they had their fill of that by the time they finally got rid of them and now they didn't like shepherds. Well, maybe, but it's, to me it's a little thin, but the thing that really, really bothers me about that whole idea is, is it just simply doesn't fit into the dating that we understand in a conservative approach to the scripture. And I know you're all aware without us getting off into a, a rabbit trail of the conservative and liberal dating for the Exodus and for Moses and all that kind of stuff, what carries back. When you look at, at when the Hyksos kings were there, it's like 150 to 200 years later. Because we're looking at, we're looking at basically the 1800s BC with Joseph. And the Hyksos kings are coming in like 1650, maybe a little bit earlier than that, and running through the 1500s. So I don't particularly gravitate towards that explanation. You know, folks, as I've gotten older, I've come to understand, and my brother said this to me recently as well, and I just nodded my head. You know, I really don't have a problem admitting to people when I don't know something. I don't know, maybe when you're younger, you don't like to admit that. But I think there are times when we have to realize that there are things in the Bible that we just may not have all the information that we'd like to have. We have enough. I think this is one of those times. Why this, was there this antipathy? We don't know. The salient point, though, is there was. I think Joseph is thinking in a couple ways. He's playing off of this. He knows he can use this. He knows he can go in and, and to say to Pharaoh, these guys are shepherds, and he tells them when they go in, you tell them you're shepherds too. Why? Because then you'll get, then Pharaoh will agree. He'll have no problem with you settling in the land of Goshen. Goshen is what? Goshen is close enough for, Jer 
for Joseph to kind of take, take care of them, keep his eye on things, but it's not exposing them to the corruption of the royal city. And you know something? Moses had to deal with that, did he not? If you think about Moses, I mean, he grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Some people think that he had a shot at the, at the throne. He grew up in the royal court. And the Bible says that he was skilled in all the wisdom and speech of the Egyptians, which is why I always kind of think to myself, you know, when he told God at the burning bush, I can't talk, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, unless he just got to looking at those sheep out there all those years and forgot his speech lessons. But for, for those of us who went to Bob Jones, I mean, I can still remember things in freshman speech. If, even if you don't believe that, it's true. I had Bobby Yarrick for my teacher. She was a, a, a grand lady. And I can still remember all about diaphragmatic breathing and, and having to get up there and make those speeches. But think about this. It, being in the royal city and being exposed to all of those worldly temptations, I can see Joseph seeing some value, especially when, when we look at the record and we kind of think to ourselves, you know, these guys were not really impressed with a high level of spirituality with these brothers of... I mean, Judah's made some real progress, but, but you know, so far they, they really, and even when you get to chapter 49 and you hear what Jacob has to say about his own sons as he pronounces those prophetic blessings, it, some of them are not maybe the greatest. And the Bible seems to always take the trouble to tell us when some, somebody and somebody had a Canaanite wife. It's kind of interesting, too. So I think that, that Joseph is considering the spiritual part of this, knows that Goshen is a good place for them, close enough for him to, to do what he needs to do, but separate. Um, did I use a word that we hear sometimes? Aren't we supposed to live lives of separation? Aren't we strangers and pilgrims in this world? Aren't we in the world but not of the world? And I, I kind of think this is a part of what's going on here. So honesty is the best approach. Pharaoh, uh, he knows this is the best way to handle Pharaoh. If you're up front with it, actually use it in your favor. Pharaoh's going to say, yeah, good, okay. You guys go over there to Goshen, and then it won't be a problem. And by the way, if any of them are sharp, let them watch my livestock too. That's my thought. I also know something else here. I don't have time much to talk about this, but, you know, it's always bothered me when I... Sometimes you get a kid that'll go out there in life and succeed. Lots of times they go off to school, university, or whatever, and make a bunch of new friends, and their friends have one impression of them as being one thing, and, you know, the family they came from was maybe um, just normal, kind of routine people, unimpressive. And then they, it's almost like they become ashamed of their family. You think about Joseph now. He's lived in Egypt all these years. He's the prime minister of Egypt. Functionally, he's an Egyptian. Spiritually, he's not. But functionally, he's an Egyptian in every way. And now he's going to bring in these nomads, 
That's what they were. I don't mean to be demeaning, but they were shepherds. They lived a nomadic lifestyle. There was nothing super impressive about them. They didn't come in there with all kind of university degrees or they weren't from the realms of academia. They weren't even from major cities. Do you follow what I'm trying to say? But Joseph trots them right out, brings five of them in there, and then it says he brought in Pharaoh. He wasn't ashamed of them, and I, to me that's, when I think about his service to his family, that, that scores points with me. And finally, you'll notice that all of this God blesses with success. That verse there that kind of ends the whole scenario of this section there. Thus Joseph settled, or thus Israel, verse 27, settled in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, a perceptive person, so I just want to pass this along, a perceptive person is going to, you know, there's good and bad in that statement. Joseph was successful. He brought them there. His goal was to provide for them. Physically, for sure, very likely he had spiritual goals in mind for them. He was successful with both. And in the material sense, and in the greater sense of what God wanted to accomplish himself by bringing them into Egypt to build of them a great nation, it took off. Folks, this thing just took off. That's what this is saying. They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. This is what God intended. Yet on the other hand, with prosperity comes its own problems, doesn't it? And as time goes by, do you notice, even though it was God's overall purpose for it to be accomplished, they may have thought, Jacob probably thought when he went down there, you know, we're just, we're just here till the famine's over. They were there for 400 years. And by the time they got ready to leave out of there, they were different in a lot of ways, which is why Moses had so many problems with them grumbling in the wilderness. Well, we have to move along. What about Pharaoh? Here we get into another very interesting thing to talk about. If you summarize what goes on in this, we've got to read this. I guess that's where time is going to really pinch us here today. But let's, let's pick our reading up here with verse 13. And uh, actually, um, if you make a change on your outline from 13 to 26, is kind of what I intended. And I, I'd already sent the paper to Luann before I fixed it myself. But, so you have 828, I mean to 26. So we pick up our reading and look at this, um, 47. Now there was no food in all, the land, in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Joseph gathered up all the money that was in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house and when the money was all spent. See, so you notice that the government didn't print more. And they didn't have stimulus. When the money, sorry. <laughs> when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give me your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, 
the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. When the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herd of livestock, the herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we will and with our land we will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and for all the Egypt and all the for all the Egyptians sold their fields, because the famine was severe on them, the land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made them servants from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you in your land, bought you in your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh. Remember, that was the original thing he told Pharaoh he would do. And four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and for food for yourselves and your households, and for your little ones. That's where they use the little ones, not the descendants. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the, peop, the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. Now, if Moses is the writer, this is 400 years later. Stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, the land of the priests should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. All right, so we don't have much time to talk about this, but uh, this is interesting, and I don't know that I want to say controversial, but it does provoke some questions with some people. Well, first, he bought their, bought, gave them grain for their money. When the money was gone, you, know, you think in terms of silver. So, or, so that when, the, when they didn't have any more, he, he collected all the money, turned it into Pharaoh. And the livestock, he's bought that. Finally, themselves in their lands, and they have nothing left. Then he makes the deal with them about that we just read about. And in the end, Pharaoh gains complete control, as we see in verse 21. There's a, just so you know what's going on here in my notes, in verse 21, there's a little bit of a, a textual and translational variance. And the King James, the New American Standard, the Legacy Standard Bible, translates, he removed them to the cities. In this particular case, I kind of think ESV got this one right because the context favors this. They became servants, and that's the way this is translated um, uh, in verse 21. As for the people, he made them servants from one end of Egypt to the other. So this has provoked some questions on some people's part. Was this severe? Was this unkind? Was he a communist? Was he an autocrat? These are the kinds of questions people ask. Again, folks, a little humility won't hurt us. There's just some things we don't know about all this, but there are two things that you can know that I think mid against 
mitigate against coming up with the idea that anything that Joseph did was unfair, unkind, or harsh. The two things are this. He kept his commitment to Pharaoh, which was all the way back in chapter 41. When he proposed the plan in the very beginning, he said, the fifth. You remember that. I'd go back, but we're pressed. And if the people really thought that Joseph was some type of autocrat and that what he did was took advantage of them and now he's got all their land, I think you have to think of them not in terms of bond slaves, but more like tenant farmers. They farm the land for Pharaoh instead of themselves. But verse 25, they're grateful. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So when I think of Joseph in his public life, his political life, his life, his service there, I see him rendering honorable service to Pharaoh and to the people. Lastly, his father. I think we have just enough time to touch on this. Let's read the verses Beginning verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, this is 17 years later as you read verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his sons and said to them, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh Promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let it lie, let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself and worshiped upon the head of his bed, or as some translation have it, staff. Well, ever the pilgrim. He used that word twice when he was talking to Pharaoh. Did you catch that? I tried to emphasize that because I knew it was an important point for us later. Go back to verse 9. And the Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning or pilgrimage are 130 years at the end of his statement and have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning, their pilgrimage. So think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They looked for a city, didn't they? They didn't live in a city. Lot, Lot tried that and it didn't work out too well. They, they didn't live in the city, but they looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They recognized, they confessed that they, Hebrews tells us this, they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims. Folks, that's the way really we need to think of ourselves. We're in the world but not of the world. So he has a request because God grants him 17 more years, but he doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. He's thinking about Machpelah. He's thinking about Machpelah, where Abraham is buried, where Sarah is buried, where Isaac is buried, where Rebekah is buried, and where he buried Leah. He buried Leah, his first wife there. What happened to Rachel? She died by the way, and he couldn't get her there. You know, this is what I'm talking about when you look down a little bit further. 
to point C, I'll just anticipate it, there's some considerable logistics in this when you stop and think about this because, you know, in our day, it's a little different. I mean, it, not to be on a ghoulish subject, but I mean, you know, you, you call the funeral home and they come and they have ways of taking care of all that with embalming and so forth so that you can move a body. I mean, my gracious, my mom died in Idaho and she was flown back here to South Carolina for the funeral which was carried out at my brother's church in Spartanburg and she's buried in the old Salem or the Salem Cemetery in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You can do all of that but when Rachel uh, died alongside the way, no embalming, you, you know, you're on a short time frame, right? <laughs> Not much you can do. He, he couldn't get her there. So, you know, that one, but he's thinking back to his people. He's thinking back to the, the land of promise. They don't want to be buried. His, his body's there, but his heart's not there. So when he dies, he wants to be buried in Canaan, in that burial place. So he extracts, and I, I, that's maybe too strong of a word because you don't, there's no hesitation on Joseph's part. He asks for an oath, a, a swearing. He says, put your hand under my thigh. Well, again... Uh, let me just summarize for you. This is kind of a, a Bible custom that is a little strange to us. Um, I think probably what you've going on, there, there is a reference to, to, to an intimate part of the body here, as if you read that, you'll see. I don't think you have to make the conclusion that it involved actually putting your hand on the most intimate part. But maybe something like this. You're close enough so that the idea is there. You see where my hand is? On my upper thigh. Under your thigh. That word thigh is also translated loins because it, it, it has, it's like a figure of speech. It has the, the overtone of the generative process, the reproductive process. That's, that's why that reference is there. And some people think that the idea behind this seemingly strange custom it happened back with Abraham when he told the servant, Eliezer, do you remember this? That's 24-2. Go over there and find a wife for my son Isaac. And if you don't find a wife for my son Isaac, she's not willing to come back. You don't take him back there. Now put your hand under my thigh and make this oath. And so some people think that the idea behind this association with proximity to intimacy in a man is, is the idea of if you do not carry out this oath that you're taking now, my children who come out of my loins, my children will avenge this. I, that's one way of looking at this. This is really, do you get the important point that this is really important to Jacob? It's really important to him. Fortunately, he was living in the land of Egypt at that point. What we're going to see when we get to that end verse is that Joseph had the ability to have him embalmed. <laughs> you know? I mean, he was in Egypt. He didn't have that in Canaan. You know, the local funeral home in Canaan didn't offer that service. But they had that ability in Egypt, and that's what Jacob or Joseph did. He had his father embalmed. And that funeral, what, I mean, when we get there and we look at that, that was quite a to-do. So there were considerable logistics involved in this, but Joseph was faithful to the end. 
in his commitment and in his service to his father. And that's the point that I want to make, and we got to go. But we see him in his personal life, his family life, his public life, and you don't see him as anything but how you expect him to be. He's exactly who he is. He's faithful. Not only a life of service, but a life of faithful service. Dear God, bless us as we go now, and bless us in the service to follow. In Jesus' name, amen.